Good evening. Good to be with you guys tonight. Before we get started, kids, fifth grade and under, why don't you go ahead and make your way downstairs to Clubhouse. I hope that you have a great night of worship for yourself and of teaching. The rest of us, we're going to start by opening up our Bibles to two places. First, in our Old Testament, Second Chronicles chapter 9. That's where we're going to spend the first part of our time. And a little bit later, we're going to open up to Romans chapter 11. So if you want to go ahead and just mark your place there. Uh, but then we're going to start in Second Chronicles chapter 9. This series that we've been in over the last few months has been all about knowing God according to the way that he has defined himself through the pages of our Bibles, replacing our assumptions about who God is with his own insistence on who he is. And my hope is that as we've gone through this series together, whether you've been here in the room with us or whether you've been listening online, that you've been encouraged and that we'll all be walking away with not only a deeper knowledge about who God is, but a more passionate desire to continue in our pursuit of him, to continue discovering him. And that's really what this weekend is about, this last sermon. It's about the reality that while we can know God because he has revealed himself to us in a very real way, something that no other fake God or no God of any other religion has done. So while we can know God, that we cannot fully know God. And it's this reality that we start with and that we'll spend our time tonight investigating that God is unsearchable. God is unsearchable. We said from the beginning that God is always more than the sum of the attributes that we've discussed. That we can't just box him into these things or even fully explore any one of them. There's always more to him, always more to be known, always more to be loved, always more to be discovered. And so it's fitting that we end our series with the reality that our lives as believers should be spent seeking to know more about this unsearchable God. And what we discover is that as we know more of him, that we love him more. And as we love him more, our joy as those who have been saved by him increases all the more. That knowledge of this unsearchable God is directly tied to our joy as followers of this unsearchable God. The two ideas are deeply, deeply connected, directly related. Knowledge of God and joy in God. And so I want us to start by praying that God would help us to see that this evening and then we'll get into his word. Father, we, as we have done so many times um, over these last couple of months, we just thank you for your word. And we thank you that you've told us who you are through it and that we don't have to guess at these things, but we can really know you. But at the same time, we know that we can't fully know you. And so, Lord, may our lives be about knowing more of you so that our joy in you can increase all the more. Give us understanding and discernment as we open up your word this evening that you would be speaking to us by your Holy Spirit and that by it we would be encouraged and we would continue in our passionate pursuit of who you are and what you've done. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to begin uh, looking at this reality through the lens of Second Chronicles chapter 9, uh, looking at the account of an unnamed queen who visits King 
Solomon. You can find this same account in 1 Kings 10, but we're going to focus here in Chronicles for the sake of consistency and clarity. You can look in both places, but we're going to be looking here in the Second Chronicles account. We start in verse 1. When the queen of Sheba heard of Solomon's fame, she came to Jerusalem to test him with hard questions. Now remember that Solomon, who was the son of King David, becomes king over God's people at a very young age after his dad dies. Solomon is probably most famously, he's known for a lot of things, but he's probably most famously known for what we read in 2 Chronicles chapter 1 and also 1 Kings chapter 3. These tell us that not long after Solomon becomes king at this really young age, that God comes to him in a dream and he says, you can ask for whatever it is that you want. Now that is not a a request or an invitation that many of us receive from the maker of the universe. You can ask for whatever it is that you want. And Solomon could have asked for whatever he wanted. I believe that. He could have asked for whatever it was that his heart desired, but instead he says these words, God, give me wisdom and knowledge that I may lead this people. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? And what Solomon is asking for is a discerning heart. He's asking for wisdom to lead well and wisdom to make decisions that aligned with what God wanted. That's really what wisdom is. Wisdom is not a product of age and experience and education. Wisdom is an understanding of what it is that God wants so that we can live our lives in, a, in alignment with what God wants. That's what Solomon asks for when he asks for wisdom. And that's exactly what God gives him. God says in verses 11 and 12 of that chapter, since this is your heart's desire, wisdom and knowledge will be given you. In fact, God not only grants Solomon's request for wisdom, but God also gives him the things that he didn't selfishly ask for. Wealth and honor and possessions. God made him wiser and more prosperous than any of the kings around him. In fact, God said, in your wisdom, nobody will ever come that will be equal to you in your understanding of what I want. That's how we understand Solomon to be the wisest man who ever lived. But from that point on, Solomon, everything that Solomon put his hand to, prospered beyond imagination. He spends the first bit of his kingship building the temple where God would dwell among his people. And then he spends some time building his own palace, which coincidentally he spends more time building than God's temple. But at any rate, Solomon prospers in everything that he does. He's very wealthy. And those outside of Jerusalem begin to take notice. Rumors began to spread about this king who was not only wealthy, but smarter and wiser than everybody else. And eventually, the rumors make it to the ears of this unnamed, mysterious queen from a place called Sheba. Now, we don't know much about this queen. But what we do know is that the place that she comes from, Sheba, was a wealthy place. Other references to it in our Old Testaments almost exclusively talk about the things that are coming out of Sheba. Gold and livestock and valuable goods. It was an area known for its merchants, for traders. And so what we can conclude from this is that this queen coming out of this place, she knew wealth. She knew what prosperity looked like. 
and she could spot a phony. She came wanting to see for herself if what she was hearing about this young king was true because she could tell if it was all fake. She could tell if it wasn't true and there was no way that Solomon or anybody else was going to fool her. Now I want you to stop for just a moment and consider all of the things that we have learned about God through this series. I mean, if we just look at the sermon titles, you get an idea. God is glorious. God is revealed. God is worthy. He's holy and all-knowing and all-powerful and everywhere. That God is unchanging. That he's slow to anger and abounding in love. That he's sovereign. God is tenacious. God is the provider. Now you look at those descriptors and those are not minor inconsequential ways in which God has defined himself. Those are not small characteristics of somebody. And what we find is that how God defines himself in these really big ways should draw us to him just like the rumors of this king's splendor drew this queen to see for herself if what she had heard was really true. In fact, if you heard rumor of somebody, anybody, who displayed any one of these characteristics, of these attributes, would you not want to go and see for yourself if what you were hearing was true? We certainly pay our money and spend our time to seek after others who are less than these things. And so if we heard somebody that was more than this, would we not want to go and see? Like this great queen who traveled a great distance to meet this man, our desire should be to seek out this incomparable and unsearchable God. To want to know if what he says about himself is really true, because if it is, then it will change everything for us. That if these things are true about God, it changes the entire way that we see the world. Our worldview is rocked. Now, we don't want to settle for the rumors. And we don't want to settle for the shadows of who he might be because that won't be enough. But to pursue him and to see him as he is and in the ways that he has said he is. And God has purpose in who, being who he is. He has purpose in being the God that he says he is. We quoted Paul a few weeks ago when he preaches in Athens that the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And that God has done all of these things. God is who he says he is so that we would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. Remember that this is a God who is insanely big, but is also insanely personal. And he is inviting you and me to come and discover him. He's inviting us to investigate his claims about himself. And then he's going to show us something even more incredible than all of those things that we've heard. That's exactly what happens in this story. The queen sets out to see for herself if the claims she heard about this king of the Hebrews are true. She arrives at Solomon's palace, flanked by a large caravan of camels and attendants. She has spices and gold and precious stones. As we, as we said, she knew wealth and she was coming from a wealthy land of merchants and traders. 
But her arrival wasn't simply meant as a courtesy visit to pay honor to this king and give him expensive gifts and flatter him in order to get something in return. That was not the purpose of why she came. Verse 1 said that she had come to test him with hard questions. She came to Solomon and she talked with him about all that she had on her mind. The author doesn't record for us the questions that she had for him or what was on her mind. But it's pretty easy to read between the lines and see that she came with some level of skepticism about the things that she had heard. She even says as much in verse 6 when she says that she didn't believe the things that she had heard. And so she had come to hear for herself to see if what she had heard was true, if this king was actually living up to the height that had reached her land. When you were first drawn to God, or maybe you've been hearing these things about him for the first time, did you come or do you come with some level of skepticism? Maybe outright unbelief, thinking that there is no way that these things that we've studied can be true. See, I'll agree with you that the way God defines himself is truly unbelievable. That's what makes God God, and that's what ensures that we will never be God is that these things that God has said about himself are unbelievable. But even as we approach him, having been drawn to him by him, it's difficult for us to comprehend his enormity. And that can lead to doubt. That can lead to questions. And that can lead to skepticism. Perhaps your doubt isn't obvious because... I think that in, in some ways, as a whole, the church has often created a culture where it's not acceptable to express doubt about the characteristics of God or who God is. And so we may not speak these things out loud in a group of people. We may not get in a small group and say, well, the Bible says this, but you know, I, I'm not really sure about that. We may not say that out loud, but doubt will always reveal itself in other ways. Most notably, I think it expresses itself in how we pray to this God that we've been hearing about. When you get down on your knees alone and your heart begins to speak, that's when your true belief in how God defines himself is most clearly seen. Do you believe in his holiness and righteousness and his worthiness as you ask him to help you let go of a way of life that's contrary to the way that he wants you to live? Or do you continue living that way because God couldn't possibly demand that much of you? Or God's holiness couldn't be so important that he wants me to live a holy life that's pleasing to him? Do you believe that he has the power to heal? If God is omnipotent, then he has the power to heal. Do you believe that even when the doctors have said there's nothing else that can be done? Do you believe that he can really draw hearts back to himself? when your son or daughter's been gone for so long and it seems like they'll never come back? Do you really believe that he knows all things? Especially that he knows your pain. That he knows what you're experiencing right now in this very moment, the emotions that are going through your mind and your heart. Or do you believe that he's seen every day that you're living long before that day came to be? Or do you believe that he's right there, that he's 
omnipresent, that he's present with you as you speak to him or even just as you groan at him because that's all that you can get out. Or even in knowing him, knowing all of this about him, do you pray trusting his sovereignty, having faith in his purposes and plans, even when the outcome isn't exactly what you asked for? Because that's what sovereignty is. It's saying, God, I trust that you're in control of this, even if things don't happen the way that I want them to happen. There's certainly a risky thing to pray and to believe. You see, our prayers to God, not, not the ones that we say out loud in front of a group of people, but our prayers when we're in our bedroom, when we're in our office, when we're in our closet, that reveals our theology. It reveals our heart. It reveals what we believe about how God has defined himself. And so in some ways, we approach God in those times with some level of doubt and skepticism about the things that he has said to us. But Solomon didn't turn this queen away because of her questions and her doubts. And God doesn't turn us away when we approach him with our questions and doubts. The invitation that he gives us is to lean in closer, to discover more of him, and to allow him to show himself to be all of these things that he said about himself. Now, don't get me wrong. God does not owe me anything. He doesn't owe any of us anything. He doesn't have to prove himself. He doesn't have to justify who he is and what he does. Solomon could have sent this woman back the way she came and his splendor would have remained intact regardless of what she thought about him. That even if she had gone back to her land telling everybody that he was a phony, he would have still been the wisest man who ever lived with wealth and possessions beyond imagination. What we think about God does not change God in the slightest. Any way that a passing thunderstorm changes the brightness of the sun doesn't change it at all. It may look dimmer to us at the time, but it doesn't change its nature, what it is. But God invites us to really know him. And it's in the middle, right in the middle of our circumstances that he will show himself to be who he says he is. See, the queen came to Solomon with her questions and her doubts and her skepticism, wondering if what she had heard was true, and Solomon allowed it. He allowed it to happen. He allowed her to ask, to see, to share what was on her mind. And for every single doubt, he had an answer. Verse 2 says, Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was too hard for him to explain to her. And right there is where the story shifts. Verses 3 and 4 tell us that when the queen saw Solomon's wisdom, when she experienced it firsthand, when she saw all that he had and all that he had accomplished, when she looked around and it became apparent that the rumors that had reached her ears were true, she became overwhelmed, as the Bible says. It was almost too much for her to handle. In fact, it wasn't until she met him in person that she really believed that her skepticism was wiped away and her doubts were erased. And it's true for you and me that when we replace the rumors of God with the reality of God, we too should be overwhelmed, overcome by the things that we're seeing and experiencing. Paul shows us this in Romans chapter 11, if you want to go ahead and turn over to where you marked your place a little earlier. Verse 
Paul's background is important here. Graham preached a couple weeks ago reminding us of Stephen's death in Acts chapter 7. Remember that Saul, whom we know as Paul, was present at the murder of Stephen, but not as the same man who wrote this letter to the church in Rome. So our very first biblical introduction to Paul shows him giving approval to the stoning of Stephen. Later in Acts 22, Paul even says that he was there to give approval, that he was holding the coats, that he was guarding the outer garments of those who were doing the killing. Now, this is a man who at this time believed that he knew God. At Romans, at Acts chapter 7, Saul believes that he knows God. He had certainly heard about him. He'd grown up in the Jewish faith and he'd spent his life climbing the ladder as a Pharisee, a so-called expert in God's law. And I believe that he genuinely thought that what he was doing at that time was in alignment with what God wanted. You see, that's the trouble with believing lies and assumptions about who God is without looking at how God defines himself. Because we can go through our lives genuinely believing that we are doing the things that God wants when God has never said that we should act that way or we should think that way about him or we should think that way about other people. And so Paul had, in some ways, Saul had bought into lies about God and misunderstandings about God. And so I believe that he genuinely thought that he was doing right by God as he stood by and approved of Stephen's killing. At any rate, it wasn't until Paul had a face-to-face encounter with God, with Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, that he realized that he had been wrong and his life changed drastically. Everything he knew about the world changed. And he would write, beginning in Romans chapter 11, verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him for from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That is a really weighty couple of verses. Romans is a letter about God's mercy displayed through the gospel telling us of how we've all disobeyed God and how we deserve hell, but God in his great mercy made a way for us to be saved. That's the gist of the letter. But it's actually a very difficult letter to understand. If you ever become discouraged because you're having trouble understanding something that Paul wrote, then just remember that Peter even says that the things that Paul wrote are difficult to understand. One pastor paraphrases 2 Peter when he says, I hear you've been reading the letters of Paul. Good luck with that. Like, it is hard stuff to get our minds around. And the point is that Paul was a dense, dense writer. He wasn't a poetic. He was an intellectual. His sentences were long and complicated, so much so that we have to break them down piece by piece and look back three chapters in order to understand what it is that he's trying to tell us. But that's not the case with Romans chapter 11, where Paul seems almost to suddenly break out in song in a burst of praise to this God who has been orchestrating this great rescue story from the very beginning. I think it would almost be like me getting up here to preach and all of a sudden just breaking out into song. That's a really difficult thing to imagine, isn't it? (laughs) 
I, I don't like to imagine it. In fact, if we get to the end of Romans chapter 11, it almost seems out of place. Like all of a sudden, he's, he's singing about this God. It seems out of place until you realize that Paul is being overwhelmed by the mercy of God. That he's being overcome by it. That he's experienced it firsthand and he literally can't hold his pen back from writing these words that are in his mind. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. He's overwhelmed by God's mercy. When you and I discover the same God that Paul discovered when he finally knew him, when we replace the rumors of him with the realities of him, when we experience firsthand his mercy in spite of the things that we've done, his love of me in spite of me, then we too should become over, overcome by the realities that we have discovered about this God, overwhelmed by them. It should be almost too much for us to handle, but like in a really good way. It should cause us to break out in song, maybe not literally, but in our own way of how we experience joy and excitement of how God wired us to experience joy and excitement, the way that God made us in our own personality. Now, I'm not a very excitable person. I'm not a very passionate person on the outside. But there are times, there are times in my own study of God and in listening to others preach about God or even as God guides me in writing something that I get to preach that I'm bursting with the possibilities of what these truths mean about God and what they mean about my relationship with God. David Bigelow gets to experience that more than anybody else because his office is right next to mine. And when I read something that just, I just have to go over there and talk to him about it <laughs> and interrupt his day and say, look at what I just read about this. Isn't this so cool about who God is? Now, our faith is not driven by emotion. But I do believe that there are times when our faith does lead us to an emotional response. How can we not get excited and passionate about this insanely big and insanely personal God? When I read about him in, my, in his word, it's overwhelming at times. Now turn back with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 9, verse 4, as we look back at this queen's encounter with Solomon and an important observation she makes that is on point in our own discovery of God. Verse 4 said that she was overwhelmed by all that she had heard and saw, all that she heard from Solomon, all the things that she saw around her. And then in verse 5, she says, the report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true. She affirms that on seeing everything for herself, that reality did not disappoint the expectation she had heard about the rumors. But then she says, but I did not believe what they said until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half the greatness of your wisdom was told me. You have far exceeded the report that I heard. So she had come to Solomon with an expectation regarding what it was that she was going to discover. When she initially set out from her homeland to investigate what she had heard, her expectation would be that this man would be less than the rumors. 
She thought that she would get there and she would be underwhelmed by the reality because she was coming from a place of wealth and prosperity, that there was no way that anybody could live up to this kind of hype. And then she arrives and realizes that all that she had heard was true. And even if just the things that she had heard had been true, she would have been amazed. She would have been overwhelmed. She would have left that place and gone back to Sheba and told about this king, even if the things that she had heard were true. But, she says, it wasn't just the things that she had heard that were true. There was so much more. She hadn't been told the half of it. Reality far exceeded the rumors and the expectations and the assumptions about Solomon and his wisdom and his splendor. Now, you and I have heard a lot of things about God over these last couple of months. We've heard a lot of things about God through our walk as Christians as we've spent, some of us, our entire lives, 50, 60, 70 years even, getting to know this God. And you think about the knowledge that you've gained through reading and studying your Bible, by being here week after week, by sitting in small groups and, and listening, even if you're brand new to the faith, the things that you've learned about God in, in even just a short amount of time. When my great-grandmother passed away several years ago, she had read her Bible cover to cover more than a hundred times. Imagine the wealth of knowledge about God in reading your Bible that many times. We find out that the reality is that no matter how many times we read, there's always more. There's always more to discover. And that God will always live up to every single way that he describes himself. He certainly will not disappoint the rumors, but it's more than that. Because God will always exceed the rumors, and he will always be more than we can know about him. He will always be more than we can know about him. When Paul sang of the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, he was expressing the reality that this God is a bottomless treasure chest. That he is a, a mind that continues to yield precious gems no matter how deep you dig. There is no end to it. We could take any one of these attributes of God and spend our entire lives studying them, preaching on them, meditating on them, and never get to the end of what it means about God about who God is. I said at the beginning that our joy in God is directly tied to our knowledge of God. That our joy increases as we know God more truly and more fully. And if we can't get to the end of what we know about God, then what does that mean? It means that we can't get to the end of full joy that it's ever increasing. It goes on infinitely as we discover more about this infinite God. That as knowledge of God increases more and more, then joy in God increases more and more. And it's a joy that we can never get to the end of. And that's certainly true while we're here on this earth. That if we dedicate our lives to replacing our assumption about God with God's own insistence about who he is through his word, then over time we should be more joyful as Christians than we were when we first started out. That's why I find it difficult to understand why so many Christians retire to grumpiness and cynicism. It's the reality inside the church. We see it played out time and time again. 
that guys and, and women who have lived their lives faithful to the Lord become grumpy and, and, and cynics. When the reality is that a life lived in pursuit of the knowledge of God should cause us to be more joyful when we reach the end of our walk with God. And so the challenge is to never stop searching after this unsearchable God. To continue pursuing, discovering, investigating, studying, knowing Him because it's in knowing Him that we become even more joyful in our relationship with Him and that is true joy that can be pursued over the course of our entire lives. But we also live our lives as Christians in pursuit of the knowledge of God, knowing that we will never get to the end of it. And that's what it means for God to be unsearchable, that we never get to the end of it. That no matter how much we think we understand about who God is and how he's defined himself, that there's always going to be more. Yes, we can know truths about God as they are affirmed in his word, but we can't get to the full depth of any of it. And so we press on knowing. We press on knowing that one day we will no longer look at God as through darkened glass, as Paul says, but one day we will see him face to face. And it's on that day that we, like the queen who came to Solomon and looked upon his splendor, that we will say, I thought I knew you. I thought I knew you. But not even a millionth of your glory and perfection and mercy was told to me. I thought I knew you. But it's so much more than I knew. So much more than I, I, I discovered and, and, and learned. I pray that that future reality about this unsearchable God enlivens your heart today to more passionately pursue him, to know him. And if you don't know him right now, but you've come today because you've heard the rumors, something's brought you here. Something's put you in your seat today. Maybe just the rumors about God have drawn you to him to be where you are right now. Then you need to know that it is God himself who is drawing you to him, who has drawn you here. And the invitation is to lean in to allow him to show you who he is through Jesus Christ, just as Paul discovered God first through Jesus Christ on that road to Damascus, that we know the unsearchable God through his son who gave up his life so that we could have a relationship with this God. And it's the reality that you too can know him, can really know him the way that he's defined himself. Let's stand up and let's pray. Father, we are or should be overwhelmed by these great truths of who you are. That even in the way that you've designed us and you've wired us, we get to experience joy and excitement in your love for us and we get to increase in our love for you. And I just pray that as we continue in our pursuit that, that you would increase our joy. That we would seek to know you more. And that in knowing you more, we would... God, we would be overwhelmed by the reality of, of simply our salvation and the reality that you've, you've given us eternal life. And we look forward to that day when we get to stand before you. And God, I look forward to, to experiencing so much more than even I know now or will know at the end of my life. Thank you for Jesus who's made it all possible. And for those in this room who are listening right now who don't, who haven't discovered you through your son, 
I pray that you draw them to yourself. You'd help them to know the reality that the things you've said about yourselves are true and that hearts and souls would be awakened to accept this great salvation. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you need to talk to somebody about something you've heard today or we can help answer any questions, I'll be up here as we sing the song or any of the other guys will be available as well. Let's sing together.